In Genesis chapter 13, the patriarch Abraham is presented with a problem. The Lord had prospered his house and that of his nephew Lot such that the land where they dwelt could no longer sustain the flocks and the herds of these two very wealthy men. So Abraham decided to separate from his nephew and he offered to Lot the first choice of the land. If Lot wanted to go east, Abraham would go west. If Lot headed west, Abraham would journey east. And at this point, the narrative of Genesis records that Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And the next we hear of Abraham's nephew Lot, he has not only moved his tents as far as Sodom, but he's dwelling within the very gates of Sodom, Genesis 14, 12. Well, many years later, the Lord appeared before Abraham's tent and he was accompanied by two angels in Genesis chapter 18. And the Lord informed Abraham that the cry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave. Genesis 18.20 And the Lord informed Abraham that he was going to destroy the cities of the valley in judgment. Abraham then interceded before the Lord on behalf of his nephew and his family for Abraham knew that Lot and his entire household dwelt in Sodom. And the Lord agreed that he would spare the city if there were found among its inhabitants ten righteous people. But as we come to find out, ten righteous people could not be found. When the two angels arrived in Sodom, they found Lot now sitting at the city gate, a position of social prominence. Evidently, by this time, Lot was something of a city elder in Sodom. And you know the rest of the story from Genesis 19. Lot invited his two visitors into his home, and while the men, they were there, the men of the city surrounded Lot's door, and they demanded that Lot throw his guests out to them, that they may violently assault them and rape them out in the street. Lot tried to intercede, but the ravenous animals outside his door turned on him instead. And it was at this point that the angels struck the mob with blindness, reached out, grabbed Lot, pulled him back inside the house. And they commanded Lot to gather his family and to flee with them. Lot tried to convince his sons-in-law to flee with him, but they were sodomites through and through and would not listen. Finally, towards dawn, the angels could wait no longer. Genesis 19.15, they said to Lot, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. 
And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And when the sun rose upon the valley, the Lord rained down sulfur and fire from heaven upon Sodom and Gomorrah and all the cities of the valley. Every living thing was consumed by fire. And according to Genesis 19.28, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. And Lot's wife, longing for the city that she had left behind, looked back and instantly was turned into a pillar of salt. Now I relate the story of the destruction of Sodom because it illustrates the point of our text today in Revelation chapter 18, which foretells the destruction of Babylon, the emblematic world city, the city of man. And it does so in terms very reminiscent of the fall of Sodom. You'll notice in verse 8, Babylon will be burned with fire. Verse 9, the smoke of her burning. Verse 18, the smoke of her burning. But the connection goes even further. The connection between Babylon in Revelation 18 and Sodom of Genesis 19. Because you'll remember back in, Je- in Revelation 11:8 that John says that the great city where the prophets prophesied The great city, a phrase that is used to refer to Babylon everywhere in Revelation 18, where the prophets, the saints are killed, is identified with Sodom and Egypt and the earthly Jerusalem, where their Lord was crucified. Why? Why does John say that? That the prophets were killed and their bodies lay in the streets of the great city, which symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt the city where their Lord was crucified. Because all of these cities, Sodom, Egypt, the earthly Jerusalem, Babylon, they all share the common characteristic sins of idolatry and immorality and luxury. And we'll find the very same sins listed as the reason for Babylon's fall as we proceed through Revelation 18. And so today, just to cast this in, Biblical terms, here's what's going on. Sodom is about to be destroyed by sulfur and fire in the judgment of God. And this text comes to us like the angels, to the people of God who dwell in Sodom. And the word of the Lord to us is come out of her and come out now. Do not look back, for the cry of Sodom has reached the ears of the Lord, and her sins are very grave. Babylon stands as a symbol for human civilization, fallen human civilization. The godless cultural, commercial, and religious structures that comprise human society. And just like Sodom, Babylon will fall in the flames of God's righteous judgment. The main point of today's text is found in verses 4 and 5. It's the application. Let me give it to you right up front. 
John says, Then I heard a voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven. And God has remembered her iniquities. Babylon will be destroyed by the fire of God's judgment, and all who belong to her will, like Lot's wife, be destroyed in her judgment. Therefore, the call is for the people of God, for us, First Baptist Nixa, for you to come out from her midst, lest we also partake in her judgment. So the burning question of this text is, are we among the saints and apostles and prophets in verse 20 who will rejoice when Babylon falls? Because though we dwell in Babylon, we have not become of Babylon. Or are we like Lot's wife, having grown so accustomed to dwelling in Sodom with its luxury and its prosperity and its carnal sensuality, that when the crucial moment comes, we will find that our hearts belong more to Babylon than they ever did to the Lord. The answer to that question, I hope, will become clear as we proceed through this message. Revelation 18, as you noticed, is a long chapter. And we won't have time to deal with every verse line by line. And that's okay, because it's all image-driven. And so what I want to do is I want to give you the structure of the passage. If you're wanting to outline it, you can see kind of the way that it fits together. And then we're going to step back and we're going to look at the passage as a whole. And we're going to take three questions and ask it of Revelation 18. Alright, so here's the structure of the chapter. In verses 1 and 3, 1 through 3, another angel comes down from heaven with great authority and radiant with glory and prophesies the fall of Babylon. Then in verses 4 to 8, another voice from heaven, presumably that of the Lord, for he says, my people, come out of her, my people. The voice from heaven calls upon the saints to depart from Babylon before Babylon falls, lest they be swept away in her judgment. Verses 9 to 19 then relate the cries of those who drank her cup of abominations and and impurities and who lament her fall. First, you have the kings of the earth who got in bed with her, verses 9 and 10. Second, you have the merchants of the earth who got rich with her, verses 11 to 17. And finally, you have the sailors and the traders who carried her goods across the waters, verses 17 to 19. Then in verse 20, another unnamed voice commands all of heaven, along with all saints. Okay, so there's going to come a command in verse 20 to us, the saints of God living in this age the saints and the apostles and the prophets, to rejoice over her judgment. And then finally in verses 21 to 24, a mighty angel throws a great millstone into the sea and once again prophesies the downfall of Babylon, the great city. 
Almost the entire chapter of Revelation 18 are quotations and allusions from the Old Testament prophets. Mostly exact quotations. Old Testament prophecies in particular that foretold the destruction of other harlot cities in times past. Cities like Sodom, Genesis 19, and Babylon, Isaiah 13 and 47, and Jeremiah 50 and 51, and Tyre, the capital of the Phoenician kingdom, Ezekiel 26 and 27. So if you want to know more and get into the details about what these these images in Revelation 18 mean, what they meant for Babylon-like cities in the past, and therefore get an idea of what the passage says will become of the entire cultural, commercial, religious system of the world in the present and future, then I would just encourage you to go back, trace down, get a, get a Bible with the cross-references in the middle and the margin, and go trace down these references and lead the prophecy, or read the prophecies that prophesy the downfall of Sodom and the downfall of Babylon and the downfall of Israel and the downfall of Tyre and Sidon. But for our purposes today, we're going to stay mainly in Revelation 18 and ask three questions. Number one, why... Will God destroy Babylon? What are her sins for which God will bring judgment down upon her? Number two, how will Babylon be destroyed? What form will will her destruction take? What does the symbolism mean? And finally, what are the saints to do before Babylon is destroyed? What's the application to us today? Alright, so question number one, why will God judge and destroy Babylon? What are her sins which merit this judgment and wrath? Well, there are three times in this chapter when God gives reasons for Babylon's judgment and states them explicitly. Three indictments in this chapter against the great city. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to show you all three. We're going to read them, and then we'll step back and we'll summarize what the three primary sins were. All right, so the first passage of indictment is found in verses 1 through 3. John says, After this I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For, because all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. That's indictment number one. Okay, why will Babylon fall? Why will the bustling metropolis, the great trading center, become like a ghost town? Demons and unclean animals prowling around the skeletal remains of the once decadent city. Well, notice the conjunction of purpose there at the beginning of verse 3. For. Because. All the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Sexual immorality, riches, luxury. 
According to verses 1 to 3, that's why God is going to destroy Babylon the Great. Indictment number 2 is found in verses 6 to 8. After the Lord calls His people to come out of her, He says, pay her back as she herself has paid back others. Repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart, she says, I sit as queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come down in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. Indictment number two. Why will God give her a like measure of torment and mourning? Because she glorified herself and lived in luxury. It's an interesting word, lived in luxury. It actually translates one Greek word, which means to live strenuously. Hard living. That's what Babylon does strives with great exertion after the flesh. And because she said in her heart, I am queen and I am no widow and mourning I shall never see. Lord cannot touch me. I will stand forever as queen. It's for this pride, this self-exaltation, this self glorying spirit that permeates Babylon that God will send plagues, death, mourning, famine, fire. These are the sins of Babylon the Great. Self-glorification, luxury, and pride. Indictment number three is found after the lamentation of the kings, the merchants, the sailors, and the tradesmen in verses 9 to 19. It's found down near the end of verse 23, but we'll start at verse 21. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and hurled it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For... Because your merchants were the great ones of the earth and all nations were deceived by your sorcery and in her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and of all who have been slain upon the earth. There is indictment number three. Why will Babylon the great be thrown down with great violence? Why will the sound of music, that is the arts, cease? Why will industry grind to a halt? Why will the light of lamps and the joy of weddings vanish from her? These are all, by the way, allusions to Jeremiah 25 and Ezekiel 26 regarding the overthrow of Jerusalem and Tyre. And the answer is because she deceives the nations with her sorcery and she kills the prophets and the saints. Reminds us of chapter 17 and verse 6 where John says, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Sorcery 
and the slaughter of the saints. These are the sins of Babylon for which she will fall. So we take those three indictments, 1 to 3, 6 to 8, 21 to 24. And I conclude that there are three primary sins for which God will judge Babylon the Great, that symbol for fallen human civilization. And those three sins are, number one, idolatry, number two, immorality, and number three, luxury. Idolatry tops the list of Babylon's sins because it is the most grievous and foundational. In other words, it's because of her idolatry that Babylon is immoral and greedy. If she had number one right, number two and number three would fall in place. This goes back to the original Babylon and their desire to build a city and a tower that stretched into the heavens as a way to make a name for themselves, a monument to their own glory. That idolatrous desire to ascend above God is endemic to human nature. Indeed, it was the cause of the original fall of man. You remember the serpent slithers in and says, eat this fruit and you can be like God. You will be God. From the very beginning, human civilization has been striving to ascend into heaven to wrest God from His sovereign throne and to set themselves in His place as the gravitational center of our own little universe. Making man the measure of all things. The final arbiter of truth and morality. I think this is the primary meaning of all of the references to sexual immorality in these two chapters. Chapter 17 and chapter 18. And I think it's explicit in verse 7. She glorified herself. She took the glory that belongs to God and directed it toward herself. Now the reason why I say that these references to sexual immorality actually refer fundamentally to idolatry is because that's the way all of the Old Testament prophets from which John is quoting use the terminology. They repeatedly use the imagery of sexual immorality and adultery in reference to the idolatry of nations and of cities. Idolatry is apostasy from the one true God. It is a betrayal of His covenant with creation. And that is what Babylon represents to all the nations of the earth. She is the prostitute with whom all the kings and merchants of the earth have committed their immorality. Rather than faithfully worshiping and serving the God of heaven, Babylon represents human civilization's passion and propensity to worship idols and the false gods of money and sex and power rather than to worship and serve the Creator. Babylon is an idolatrous city. And that's an indictment on human civilization. We are to our very core idolaters. But everywhere idolatry reigns, immorality and perversion follow after. And this is the second sin for which Babylon is judged. It is not by accident that the most frequent Old Testament image for idolatry is immorality. 
Because the defilement of the soul inevitably leads to the defilement of the body. Cultures that reject God as creator also reject his design for marriage and sexual sexuality and gender identity and gender roles. One follows inevitably upon the other. We don't want God as creator. We don't want to honor him and give him thanks. We don't want to submit to his sovereign rule. And we reject his design for marriage, family, gender, and sexuality. And so sexual purity is mocked in Babylon and sexual perversion is normalized and celebrated. But can we find this idea of Babylon representing sexual immorality and perversion in the text of Revelation? I think we can. In at least three places. First, I think it's implied in the imagery of sexual immorality as the symbol for idolatry. There is such a close link between idolatry and immorality in the history of human societies that you never have one without the other. An idolatrous culture will inevitably become defiled and degraded and decadent in all manner of perversions that will take root and rot the society from the inside out. Which is exactly what you see happening in our country taking place every day around us. This is an idolatrous nation and that's why it's a perverse nation. Second, in Revelation 17:14, John says, "The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her, in her hand a golden cup, full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality." And the combination of those two words, abominations and impurities, leads me to believe that John is pointing beyond the actual idolatry to the, to the defiled acts which idolatry produces. Robert Mounts, a commentator on the book of Revelation, writes this, In her hand, she holds a golden cup that promises a heady draft of carnal satisfaction. Moral corruption and all manner of ceremonial uncleanness are what she offers. End quote. Finally, the fact that Babylon is referred to in Revelation 11.8 as Sodom, I think, seals the deal. Sodom was destroyed for its perversions, and so will Babylon be. Corrupt human society cannot continue to flaunt and glory in its own depravity and expect to escape the judgment of God. This last great sin for which Babylon will fall in judgment, then, number three, is, is its excessive luxury. So we have idolatry, we have immorality, and finally we have luxury. Babylon clearly represents a prosperous society. She is clothed, verse 16, in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels, and with pearls. Those who fornicated with her have become exceedingly wealthy. Verse 3, verse 9, verse 15, verse 19. They live in luxury. The citizens of Babylon live in luxury. Verses 3 and 7 and 9. But so what? So what if a culture is 
prosperous. Is that inherently wrong for a society to be wealthy, like ours, for instance? What is wrong with building wealth? Well, there are two problems with the luxury of Babylon that I hope that we especially will give special attention to as those who live and dwell and work in Babylon. As those who live and work in the most prosperous society the world has ever known. Lest we share in these same two sins. Because we, Americans, are particularly of all the people in the world prone to the intoxicating allure of luxury. The first main problem with the luxury of Babylon is that money and wealth became her god. It clearly became her boast, her hope, her love, her joy, the object of her worship. And became, therefore, the boast, hope, love, joy, and worship of all those associated with her. Look again at verse 7. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. What gives her that kind of confidence? That nothing can touch her. Well, it's probably all the money she's got in the bank. Which very possibly is why you have confidence that nothing can touch you. Because who needs God when you have wealth? And all of the security and pleasures which it can buy. And therein lies the deceitfulness of riches. Because notice how the kings of the earth, verses 9 and 10... The merchants of the earth, verses 11 to 17, and the sailors and traders of the earth, verses 17 to 19, weep and mourn in absolute abject hopelessness as though life is over when Babylon falls and all of their money is taken away. And take note of how many American Christians lose all hope when their earthly security afforded by their wealth is taken away. It is clear that their hope and their joy was in the wealth that Babylon could provide. And when their money was taken away, as it always is in the end, they were left with nothing. Destitute and despairing. And so let me give a word to wealthy American Christians like us. It would be this, 1 Timothy chapter 6. And I want you to hear this in light of Revelation 18. I want you to hear this as a word from the Lord for you and consider how it applies. As for the rich in this present age, that's you. You're a 95 percenter, almost all of you. You live in the top 95% of the richest people on the face of the planet. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves treasure as a good foundation for the future, so that, 
they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Ask yourself this question. If tomorrow all of your goods and trade and income and wealth and savings account and retirement plans were suddenly washed away, would you rejoice like the saints and apostles and prophets in verse 20 or would you despair like the merchants and the traders in the middle of chapter 18? Because if I understand Paul's words in 1 Timothy correctly, if you despair when everything's taken away, you're, ba- you're Babylonian to the core. No matter what you profess. Christians set their hope on God and not on the uncertainty of riches. So test yourself in this. What if everything was taken away? Just gone. Gone. Would you hope? Or would you despair? Because that will give you a pretty good indication of whether you're saved or whether you're lost. Word to the wise. Part of what it means to come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, is to change the way that you relate to money. Babylonian Americans use God while worshiping money. Christians use money, yet set their hope on God. What was wrong? Well, the first thing that was wrong was their luxury became their God. The second major problem with their wealth and luxury is that they accumulated it on the backs of slaves and at the expense of the poor and the impoverished. Now again, I get this from two places, one within Revelation 18 and one outside of it. Look with me at verses 11 to 13 where John lists that that long register of goods which the merchants of Babylon trade. It says, The merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, and chariots. Everything you could find in an ancient Near Eastern market. And slaves, that is human souls. Which is not actually a very literal translation. Literally, what John says, and the bodies and souls of men. So right, you're walking through the the markets of Babylon, and you're seeing all of these perfumes and spices and jewels and, and woods and livestock. And people. Why would John write it that way? Ask yourself this. There's a Greek word for slave. It's the Greek word doulos. It's used dozens of times in the New Testament. And yet John doesn't use it. Instead he says, 
the bodies and souls of men. Why would John state it like that if slavery were some innocuous reality of human society and not a sinister evil endemic to fallen human civilization? Tell me the Bible doesn't condemn slavery. In John's day, Babylon was Rome. And in the Roman Empire, it is estimated that there were as many as 60 million slaves. And not all of them worked in households. Not all of them, contrary to popular opinion, were the equivalent of modern-day employees. Many of them worked in mines from which they never emerged. And quarries where rocks fell on them and they died. And in the rowing galleys of trading ships. And in other extremely dangerous environments where they gave their lives for nothing except to make their masters wealthy. Many others were sent to coliseums and amphitheaters to be savagely slaughtered for the entertainment of Babylonian citizens. A society that amasses wealth on the backs of the poor will suffer the judgment of God. And a society that lives in luxury while the poor around them starve will suffer the same wrath. I could literally pull from dozens of Old Testament texts to prove this point, but I only need one. It's found in Ezekiel chapter 16, and the Lord is rebuking Jerusalem, His people, for acting like, catch this, your sister Sodom. And then the sin that he confronts is not what you might expect. If I were to read, you are acting like your sister Sodom, I would expect perversion to be what is mentioned. That's not what the Lord says. He says, behold, this was the sin of your sister Sodom, Ezekiel 16, 49. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease but did not aid the poor and the needy. As we've already seen, Sodom and apostate Jerusalem were both examples of harlot cities of history. They were Babylon. So a society that amasses wealth on the backs of the poor and lives in wanton luxury while the poor around them starve will fall beneath the judgment of God. So take heed, wealthy American Christians like you and me, about the way that you spend money. It matters to God. One of the ways you come out from her is by not relating to money in the same way that she does. So these were the sins of Babylon. i gotta go. I got to move faster. These were the sins of Babylon, idolatry, immorality, and luxury, and for these sins she was destined to fall, but how? Well, there's a lot of imagery in this chapter, a lot of symbolism, desolation, verse 2, plagues, verses 4 and 8, death and mourning and famine, verse 8, burning, verses 8, 9, and 18, violence, verse 21, but I want you to notice one verse in particular, and it's verse 8. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned with fire. 
for mighty is the Lord God who judged her. Now, let your, let your eyes look over across the page to Revelation 17, 16, and you'll see exactly the same phrase. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. Who's going to burn her with fire? The beast. We read last week that Babylon's demise will come at the hands of the beast and of his puppet kings. And if I understand the imagery correctly, God's judgment upon human culture, human commerce, human false religion, human civilization, and human society, i.e. Babylon, will come at the hands of a violent totalitarian state. So allow me, if you will, to speculate for a moment as to what form this might take. What will the destruction of Babylon look like? Number one, I think the arts will cease. Verse 21, the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard no more. In totalitarian states, the only art that is allowed are images that glorify the beast. You're not allowed to paint anything else or make music that resonates with anything else. Number two, I think private industry will cease. Verse 22, and a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more, and the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. In a totalitarian state, the only industry belongs to and serves the interests of the beast. Just make more war machines. Number three, commerce will cease, free trade. Verses 16 and 17 of chapter 13. Also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or on the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast and the number of its name. In a totalitarian state, all citizens are dependent upon the beast. Can't make capital for themselves. Number four, loving and joyful marriage will cease. Chapter 18 and verse 23. The voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. Beasts don't care about emotions and such things as love and joy. They only care about authority and efficiency and power. And number five, religion of all sorts will cease. Chapter 13 and verse 15. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the beast to be killed. In a totalitarian state, the only worship that is allowed is the worship of the beast. So the fall of Babylon does not mark the end of the world. It's near the end, but it's not the end. Rather, it precedes the final conquest of the beast and the final defeat of the dragon and the beast. The beast will turn on the harlot and hate her and will seek to eradicate the image of God in man. That's my description of verses 21 to 24. Art, industry, commerce, love, worship, joy, these things are still part of the image of God in man, though they have been corrupted by the fall. And the dragon and the beast hate God, and they hate all those who are made in His image. And so they'll seek to destroy it. 
and all who are on the earth will bow before the beast and willingly give up these things except the saints who are sealed. And when the beast and his followers have surrounded the camp of the saints, then Christ will appear and the end will come. The last question to answer is this, what do we do in the meantime? What is the message of this text to us? And there are three. Very quickly. Number one, so we've already seen we are called to come out of Babylon lest we take part in her sins and therefore take part in her plagues of judgment. Now, in a physical sense, we can't separate from Babylon, nor does Jesus even want us to. Read read John 17. What is called for here is a spiritual separation, a separation from the ways of of Babylon, a separation from her idolatry and her immorality and her greed. We need to live as citizens of Zion in exile in Babylon, making a living and making a life and and seeking the good of the city, Jeremiah 29.7, but always knowing that this, America, our Babylon, is not our home. We long for a city that is to come and we are keenly aware day by day That that's my citizenship, not here. Second, we are called to rejoice over her judgment. Verse 20, rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. This means that we never fall in love with Babylon and forget whose side of the battle we're on. Jesus said, remember Lot's wife, and we ought to. We are to live in this world with such a radically God-centered worldview that we are keenly aware of how this world continually blasphemes, offends, and tramples upon God's glory day by day. And if we love the glory of our God and are zealous for His name, then we will long for the day when justice will be done and God brings judgment to pass upon this wicked land. So the question I would ask is, which city do you love most? Finally, this text is a call to persevere unto death. Look at the very last verse, verse 24. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and of all who have been slain upon the earth. See, if you do the first thing, if you come out of her, my people, you're going to suffer persecution at the hands of the harlot. If you prophesy in her midst, just like the two witnesses that symbolize the church did in Revelation chapter 11 as they powerfully spoke the word of God in the midst of the great city and were a torment to those who dwelt upon the earth, then it's very likely that it will be your blood that the harlot drinks out of her golden cup. You understand that, right? The blood in her cup is your blood. Babylon is not a safe place for those who resist her seductions. And if you have any question about that, test it. I dare you to write an op-ed piece for the Springfield Newsletter that deals with either the exclusivity of Christ, either you believe in Jesus or you will fall in everlasting judgment, or write on the appalling evil of abortion, or write on biblical standards for marriage, sexuality, and gender identity, and you see what happens. 
you see how Babylon rises up in violence. And this is the so-called Bible Belt. Imagine what happens in Seattle. Babylon is wicked, and for that wickedness, she will fall beneath God's judgment. And the call to the saints, to us, to you, is to come out of her for the love that you bear to your own soul. Whoever would save his life must lose it. You are to rejoice over her for the love that you have for God, whose name is blasphemed every day in her midst. And you are to prophesy to her for the love that you bear to the people of this city. And you are to do so until the day when the harlot rises up and silences you by death. Revelation 18 is not a pretty picture. But it is true. And if you would persevere to the end, you better be willing today to come out of her. My Father, I pray that you would seal the message of this text in our very hearts. And as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, which we need, we need this foretaste of the marriage supper of the Lamb, which we'll talk about next week. We need this foretaste in order to remind us that the sufferings are worth it. The sufferings that we will endure when we come out of Babylon and separate from her, when we prophesy in her midst, they're all worth it. And this supper is a foretaste of the glory to come. So I pray that you would seal the message of this text upon our hearts and seal the hope and the assurance of our salvation and everlasting joy through this supper. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.